We head back to the book of Acts today. Not just back to the book of Acts, but back another passage, uh, resuming where I left off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Pastor Dave looked at chapter 10 and 11, so we're heading back to the end of chapter 9. A few weeks ago, you might remember that summary statement in verse 31 after the conversion of Saul or Paul. Uh, it spoke of uh, the growth and increase of the church and the comfort and hope. And this idea of uh, what normal church might look like. And I want to look at that some more as we look at verses 32 through 43 of Acts chapter 9. These exciting things that Peter is doing, uh, as Pastor Dave looked at last week, the, the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. But before that, in this passage, we see this wonderful healing of a man who's been paralyzed for years and years and years. And we see not only that, but the resurrection of a dead woman doing very much after the pattern of Jesus, it's very exciting. But yet there's even more than that. And in fact, for those of us in just everyday life, in the midst of that excitement, there's this thread throughout this passage of normalcy. Not like the world views normal, but like the church, like the people of God. What, what does normal look like? What should we aspire to as the pandemic kind of comes to an end and we move forward into the next phase of life and ministry, individually, in our families, in our churches? What's that going to look like? Well, it's very clear in this passage that normal church life is all about Jesus. What does that look like? It's kind of surprising, but it's also kind of routine. And let's look at this passage for some help in understanding normal church life. Or would you read with me Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43 of God's holy, inspired, infallible, life-giving word. Acts 9.32. Now as Peter was traveling through all these regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years. For he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, 
the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. This is God's word. Father, would you bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, the understanding of your word. Would you work through it by your spirit for our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've had uh, in our family some cooking mishaps throughout the years. Uh, We had the sick cookie, uh, infamous in our household, the sick cookie of 2001, when uh, one of our relatives was over making a dessert of a wonderful, you know, hot pudding cake thing and inadvertently switched the salt and the sugar. So as much salt in it as you would have put sugar and as much sugar as you would have put salt. Very different amounts in a dessert, in case you wondered. And it tasted disgusting. Still sugar and still salt, right? But woo, the proportions kind of matter. That was the sick cookie of 2001. We, we also had the dehydrating scones of 2011, where uh, one of the ingredients got messed up. I believe it was the baking soda became too much in the recipe, and it just would suck the moisture out of the air, out of your mouth, out of anything nearby, turning us all into cactus, cacti, cactuses, whatever the right word is there. Uh, so these, these kind of things happen, right? The ingredients matter in a recipe. We've had much more recent successes and failures. You know, we, we found that egg substitutes work for our egg allergies. We found uh, peanut substitutes with soy and some other things. You know, you can substitute those things. Uh, as we look at this passage, that, that, that metaphor keeps coming to my mind. What are the ingredients? What's the recipe? for normal, healthy church life. We're better to go than the book of Acts as we consider coming out of this time of incredible restrictions. What's it going to look like for a, a, a tasty church life? Now, how do we avoid mixing, you know, too much salt and not enough sugar, too much baking soda into the mix? Well, if you think about it, Uh, The reality is churches aren't good at everything, right? There is no church that excels in every area. If you think about the basic functions of church life, 
worship, community, and outreach, you'll, you'll find churches that are very good at two of those, but I am not aware and have never seen a church that's good at all three. And in fact, even the two, that, you know, if you're good at two of them, you tend to be better at one of those and eh at the other. And then the third one kind of just falls. You know, I know churches that are very, very good at outreach and horrible at doing stuff with the people who come to faith. You know, they just come in the front door and they just, there's nothing going on and they wind up going to other churches because they're actually saved and know the Lord, but the church where they got saved is not feeding them. I know churches that are really good at worship and, and, and discipleship, but don't do a very good job of reaching out. And you could think of examples of those, I'm sure. But that idea of, of the right mix of ingredients, you, know, you, you, you cannot boil healthy church down to, we have to be the, the best at this, this, and this. What you have to have, though, the key ingredient is Jesus. And you know what? If, if you have Jesus, the areas that you're strong in will be in a proper proportion and not become idols. And the areas that you're weak in will be something you're honest about and you don't cover up. If you have Jesus, no matter what the rest of the ingredients are, it can be very tasty. It can be really beautiful, in fact, because the church is the body of Christ. So it's all about Jesus. And we unpacked this passage. You know, we, two weeks ago, we looked at that in terms of our relationship to Jesus. The idea that we are saints and disciples. We are set apart and following Jesus. Right? It's about Jesus. And this week, we want to be very aware of those ingredients, the relationship to Jesus, as we move into the second part, which is our activity. Our activity. Well, what does that look like? What kind of activity flows from our relationship to Jesus? Well, it's, it's going to be an activity that is driven by your identity. If you're in Jesus, it's going to result in some activity which will show works like Jesus. You will do things like Jesus. Now, we typically call those works, right? Works like Jesus will follow from a relationship to Jesus. We see that with Peter. You know, the, the church will be serving others like Peter. Peter traveled around to serve the churches. He wasn't on a, a vacation. He wasn't around wandering around. As soon as the persecution lifted and he seems to have felt safe leaving Jerusalem, which was his home base and where he was a leader, he went around visiting the other churches. And we read that in verse 32. As Peter was traveling through all those regions, probably referring back to verse 31, and the idea of the churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, 
enjoying peace. Peter's traveling through all those regions. He came down, verse 32 says, to the saints who lived at Lydda. Anywhere you go from Jerusalem, you're going down. Jerusalem's up on a hill. So he headed down to this particular place in Lydda to visit the saints, those who were set apart, the church. Then we read in verse 38 that while he was there, the saints, the disciples down in Joppa, sent for him, verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, about 12 miles apart, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. You should just think about that, right? Peter is in the midst of traveling around, visiting the churches, encouraging them, serving them. In these two places are highlighted, but it's clear that he was doing things in other places as well. These are two examples that Luke chose to share with us, two of the most dramatic, probably. But he's going around serving, doing works that are like Jesus healing a paralyzed man and raising a dead woman. Can you get any closer to works like Jesus? Right, that's, that's what he's doing. We, we don't know much about Aeneas. This man here, his name is Greek, but he appears to be a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a convert. It says that he was paralyzed, verse 33, Peter found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years where he was paralyzed. You could, it, it could be that actually he was paralyzed since the time he was eight years old. It's a little ambiguous. Regardless, at least eight years, perhaps longer, this man is paralyzed. That's all we know about him. You know, we, we have a sense that he's probably not engaged in much ministry because he's paralyzed. He probably can't do much of anything at all. He's dependent upon others. But when Jesus, or when Peter heals him, the very first thing he says, verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And now, as much as a parent, you know, I would love to say, the Bible says you have to make your bed. The language there is a little ambiguous, too. Uh, the language is actually more like spreading your bed to go to bed. So I, it, it's, it, it, it has the sense of preparing something. Uh, it's not unlikely that that's probably where he ate as well. So maybe Peter is saying, you know, prepare your bed. We could eat. Uh, tidy it up. Something like that. Uh, but whatever it is, right? The first thing Peter tells him to do is an activity. You're healed now. That doesn't mean you just go on a vacation. Even as Peter himself is cruising around, so to speak, to these cities, building up the church, he is ministering to others that they what? They might engage in activity. And there comes times in all of our lives, right, when, when you have a season of life where you can't engage in that activity. You know, you, you've, you've had a surgery. You were very active, and, and you had a surgery that laid you up for a while. It's very easy to feel disconnected. It's very easy to feel uh, detached and like everyone moved. Because you want to move. Because 
that's part of who you are as a follower of Jesus. Your relationship to Jesus sets you in motion. And when circumstances would hinder that, it's very hard on followers of Jesus. The reality is, too, that what? If we stay there very long, we tend to stay at rest and have a hard time getting moving again. And that can lead us into depression and various funks. That's something to be aware of, right? That there are seasons in life where you are hindered in your activity and in the things you want to do. And it could be because you just had a baby or you've got kids. and It could be that you're moving and transition. It could be any number of things that's going to weigh on you as a follower of Jesus. You're set apart in your relationship to Jesus. You're following Him and He's in motion. He's doing stuff. And it's hard to not do stuff. And this other incident here is, is very helpful. You know, we read about Peter healing Aeneas, and it's like, wow, this dramatic uh, healing of a paralyzed man. We, we see him raising this woman, Tabitha. But I, I want us to just look at Tabitha for a second. That part of what it means... To be doing the works like Jesus is serving others like Peter and like Tabitha. Look at what we read here in verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. So Tabitha is Aramaic. It means gazelle. Dorcas is Greek. It means gazelle. Her name was gazelle in English we would say. Uh, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and of charity, which she continually did or was doing. This Tabitha died. She got sick and she died, we read in verse 37. At that time, she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid, her in an up, they laid the body in an upper room. We, we don't know why they did that. It's not part of the traditional funeral process. Perhaps it was because she did so much good. People, you know, it was like a, when a head of state dies and you, you have them, everybody can come by and pay their respects. Perhaps it's, they've heard that Peter is nearby and they're cautiously optimistic or even hoping that Peter will come and raise her from the dead, do something miraculously. Whatever the reason, it's super clear here that the death of Tabitha left a huge hole in the lives of the people of this community. And the sense is not just of the Christians. There's actually the language here kind of separates the believers and the, the widows. Uh, can't find it right now. The, they're standing around when Peter gets there. And they're showing all of the wonderful things that Tabitha had made. Right? Look at verse 
39. Peter arose and went with them up into that upper room, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And Peter sent them out, and he raises her from the dead. This, this woman was continually doing deeds of kindness and of charity. Continually. The sense is kind of ongoing. This is, this is part of who she was. This is the activity, the works that she was engaged in. And I said a moment ago about Peter that he came and he healed a paralyzed man and he raised a dead woman. How much more like Jesus can you get? I hope you realize as you look at Tabitha and the deeds of kindness and of charity that she was continually doing, you see the same thing. How much more like Jesus can you get? A couple weeks ago we talked about the idea of the word saints meaning set apart. Not some holy special person that's done miracles and is recognized by the church, but someone who puts their faith in Jesus, who turns to Jesus, who trusts in Jesus, whose identity is found in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in thinking, I, you know, I, I'm not that important. I can't heal the paralyzed people. I can't raise the dead. I just do these acts of kindness. I just make sweaters. I just give a little bit. Or I just teach kids. Or all the worst, right? All I can do is just pray. That's sarcasm, by the way, right? How like Jesus to do those works. In other words, to be like Jesus is not exclusively or only to do something miraculous. It is to do good to others, to serve others. All of the things, and we'll unpack this more, Lord willing, next week as to what it means, uh, that why Jesus did the miracles he did, why Peter is doing these, right? Well, we'll talk about that. But just a little hint at that it is it was always, always, always about serving people, about pointing people to the truth that their lives might be better. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's the essence of the works that we're called to do. So don't walk away thinking, you know, I, I don't really do anything. I'm not like Peter. Or I'm not like that great teacher. I'm not like that great evangelist. I'm not like whoever it is. If your identity is rooted in Jesus, your relationship to him, then the works you're going to do are going to flow from Jesus and, and they're going to look like Jesus. So stop looking at other people and look at Jesus. Stop comparing yourself and your gifts to others and say to Jesus, what do you want me to do? What can I do for you, Jesus? Jesus, what are you going to do through me? And based on your personality, you might... You might have a harder time seeing that than others? Based on your life experience, you might have a harder time understanding that than others. Isn't it beautiful that part of what Jesus has done is given us a community where we can talk to each other? 
has been a challenge in this last year. But I think there's people in your life who know you well enough that they could help you understand that. I'm sure Pastor Dave, me, any of the elders, we would, be, we would love to hear that question. What, what, what does Jesus want me to do? And we can talk about that. Jesus might want you to help with Camp Treasure Island. Jesus might want you to help with Crossroads in the summer. Jesus might want you to continue being a prayer warrior. And maybe we could help you do that by giving you better information somehow. Don't shortchange, do not characterize the works you do as I only. Certainly don't put, but I, I just. The works of Jesus are diverse. The works of Jesus are what we're called to do. And you see that in Tabitha's life here? She left this hole in that community. People are just standing around. I mean, it's so sad. Here's these widows. They're just like, I picture them almost just clinging to these garments. Just like, oh, she made this for me. And she's gone. Just multiply that by how many. She's gone. She did these wonderful things. She's gone. Weeping at the loss. Now, the, the good news is that what? We know that loss is temporary. We know the loss will end one day. But think about this. Here, as, as you're coming out of the pandemic, as we're figuring out what to do with our lives, you know, when you, when you read uh, things about self-help and improvement and stuff, when you're thinking about planning and all those kind of things, you know, trying to figure out what your purpose in life is and all that, right? One of the things people often ask you to do is to kind of write your own eulogy. What do you want people to say about you when you're gone? You know, picture your funeral. What, what do you want people to be saying? That's a really helpful exercise when you're younger. And again, personality makes it harder for some of us than others to grasp that. But think about that. Or just think about it right now. If I was gone today... How, what in my life would I want people to remember? And recognize this, that it's, it's very easy. I think that's a healthy exercise, a, health, a helpful exercise to do. The problem is what? That you could beat yourself up if you look, and I haven't done anything. You could kind of have a it's, a, it's a wonderful life kind of moment where you're, you're like, you just, you're ready to jump off the bridge in black and white with the snow, right? It's a wonderful life. If you haven't seen the movie, Google it later, okay? Um, and, and, and you could have an impact you don't realize. Or you could actually have been selfish it's way too easy for us to, to be overly busy with with the concrete details of living 
that we lose track of the overall purpose of life. We can be so caught up in living that we lose track of life. Now, the, the beautiful thing right now, it maybe doesn't feel beautiful, but I am praying and hoping and have been for some time that the restrictions and the, the limits that have been placed upon all of us during this last year, more than a year, have helped us. And I've, I've heard it from any number of you, right? That, that you've been forced to slow down. You didn't have to make the hard choice about what activities to do. Were there none to do, right? So you then had to say, well, what... Now that I have all this time, what will I do? And you've rediscovered game nights. You've rediscovered connecting with people. You've rediscovered your children, your hobbies. That's, that's beautiful. Now what? As things start to pick up, what will you add into your schedule? As church life starts to pick up, what will we add? And some of you have said, we need to do way more than the 10 or so things we prioritized. And I'm saying, let's be intentional and purposeful and deliberate and consider what is Jesus calling us to do? What is Jesus leading us to do? Because here's the reality. The business of life, living, getting things done, figuring out where to go, that life you know you used to have before March of last year sucks the life out of marriages, out of families, out of churches. You get caught up in all of that, and I have seen it where a husband and a wife don't know each other anymore. They just talk about logistics of how do you get the kids this place or that place. Right? They're they're cohabiting. They're roommates. Right? And here we are with all this time in the last year. From what I've seen, it's, the debates are still out. But it seems like actually maybe marriages are a little stronger for all this time together. The same can go with churches. We just do this and that and this and that and this and that. And it's like we're just a bunch of strangers doing individual things. Or what if we could do similar things? What, what if we had a direction we were heading, we were all moving in that way? Would we not feel some more identity and fellowship? Would we not see more effectiveness? I think we would. We've been living slowed down. How are we going to intentionally speed up? It's about works like Jesus. It's not about individual good deeds. 
meriting somehow our approval before God. It's not about demonstrating that God should accept us. It's not about any of those things. It's about Jesus. It's about this relationship to Jesus that will transform us from the inside out that, that we would do works like Jesus. That, import, that order is so important, and we mess it up. And we don't have time to really dig into it too much. But I want to hit just one, one particular verse. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But, Romans 3.21 says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified as a free gift by grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Whatever we do, as we start doing more works, as we start working like Jesus... It has to be rooted in our relationship to Jesus. It has to flow from a transformed heart in us and out. What a great opportunity we have to just pray, right? to just lift our hearts to the Lord and to think as we step forward, how can we make this about Jesus? Are we making it about Jesus? Is it really about my preferences and what I want? Or is it about Jesus and what he wants? I can't make that distinction on my own. The elders can't even make it together on our own. We get input and need it from you. And in fact, the spirit is so necessary in it that we must pray. And we move forward, and we do these works, and we see the Lord. And the last bit that we'll have to wait until next week is this overarching purpose. And this, this is all the ingredients, right, in this tasty church life that is available, no matter what our circumstances are. But especially now as we come out, that this idea that we're the church, the body of Christ, it's all about Jesus, and it starts with our relationship to him, and will flow into these works that are like Jesus, serving other people, and we'll see, Lord willing, next week, the reason, the motive, the goal. I'll just give you one little hint. It's the glory of Jesus. But let's pray now. Father, we come before you. And we are thankful that our, our relationship to Jesus comes, even as the people of the, of the Exodus generation experienced it, that you come to us. You set us apart. You call us to yourself. You deliver us with mighty deeds and signs and wonders. And you lead us out, and then you speak to us of your requirements. And we're now ready to listen. Because we have a relationship to you. And you speak to us and it's scary, Lord. You make these demands. You say what you want and require of us. And we can't take it. And yet then you say, but I have provided. 
and you give us a better blood than the blood of the lambs and the bulls, the better blood than that sprinkle on the outside of the altar and the people. You give us the blood of Jesus that has transformed us from the inside out, that it can wash us clean where we most need it from the inside out, that it can wash our consciences and set us free from guilt. It can break the power of sin and set us free to obey, that it can break every brokenness within us and bring it to a healing. Lord, would you do that as we get ready to come together for communion, to remember the body and blood of Jesus, to feast on it? Would you work in us and seal the truths to our heart, Lord Jesus, as we sing? We pray in your precious name. Amen.